This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farajasat. And me, Daniel. This week, we've got a great conversation for you. The Pulitzer Prize winner and New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman was in conversation with Rana Mitter, the Oxford academic. Daniel was at this event. Daniel, tell us what happened. So the conversation was on the world in 2019, and it is as wide-ranging as it sounds. So Thomas Friedman and Rana Mitter dealt with everything from technology to Trump to China to the Middle East. It was a really fascinating conversation, and we really hope our listeners will enjoy. And for those of you who are based in London, if you're interested in coming to one of our live events, you can go to our website, intelligencesquared.com, to buy tickets. And because you're a listener of our podcast, we've got an exclusive 20% discount for you. Just type in podcast as a discount code at the checkout. Thank you very much indeed, Hannah, and thank you to everyone here this evening. It's a great pleasure to host this event on behalf of Intelligence Squared, and it's a huge pleasure to introduce Thomas L. Friedman. Before we start our conversation, though, Tom, I think you perhaps might want to just lay out the ground for us for a few minutes and tell us how the world looks now as you see it in 2019. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this, um, and thank Intelligence Squared for uh, hosting me, and thank you all for coming out. This is just... um, it's wonderful. Um, I think to understand everything I'm going to talk about tonight, um, you have to understand how I approach writing a column. And um, my motto, which I learned from my teacher, Lynn Wells, who teaches at the Defense University in, in Washington, is never think in the box, never think out of the box. Today you have to think without a box. And what I'm going to share with you is basically everything I talk about tonight will be under that framework. So my last book, Thank You for Being Late, um, is really about, uh, underneath, it's kind of how I organize a column. And um, to write a column in the New York Times, basically I think you have to combine three chemicals. A new story is meant to inform, and I could write a new story about this event tonight, and Rana would tell me whether I inform better or worse. But a column, what I do, an opinion piece, uh, is actually meant to provoke. It's actually meant to produce a reaction. So I'm either in the heating business or the lighting business. Um, <laughs> that's basically what I do. I'm either doing a heating or a lighting. I'm either stoking up an emotion in you or I'm illuminating something for you. And if I really do it well, I, I, I do both. And I know I've succeeded if you read one of my columns and you say, um, I didn't know that. That's good. I provided some light. I never looked at it that way. That's good. More, more light. Um, uh, I never connected those things. More light. Your favorite is a column. You kind of live for this. Happens three times a year. When people say, I read your column, and Mr. Friedman, you said exactly what I felt, but didn't know how to say, God, God bless you, God bless you. Um, 
And then there's, I want to kill you dead, you and all your offspring. Um, uh, uh, that's when I create a little heat. And, um, but I explain to people that to create heat and light requires a chemical reaction. You have to actually combine three chemicals. Uh, one is your value set. What, what are the values you're pushing out in the world? Are you a communist, a capitalist, a neocon, a neoliberal, a libertarian, a Marxist, a Keynesian? Um, what, what values are, really animate you? Um, second, and this will be the thrust of what I'm going to talk about, is uh, how do you think the machine works? So the machine is my shorthand for what are the biggest forces shaping more things in more places in more ways on more days. And as a columnist, I'm always working on that. That's what my books are about. I'm always trying to update how do I think the machine works today. Because what I'm trying to do as a columnist is take my values and push that machine in their direction. And if I don't know how it works, I either won't push it or I'll push it in the wrong direction. Lastly, what have you learned about people and culture? Because there's no column without people, there's no people without culture. How does the machine's movement affect different people? And how does their movement affect the machine? Stir those together, let it rise, bake for 45 minutes, and if you do it right, you too can be columnists in the New York Times. So, um, so what I want to share with you, just for starters, Ron, is, is how I think the machine works today. And I think what is shaping more things in more places, in more ways, on more days, is that we are in the middle of three uh, nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So um, if they just queue up the the PowerPoint for one second, um, uh, get that going. And so if you put Mother Nature on on a graph... Uh, or, or, um, and Mother Nature for me is climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth in the developing world. So if you put Mother Nature on a graph or in a picture, it looks like this is Glacier National Park in America, 1913, and Glacier National Park, 2012. Uh, that glacier was there for 7,000 years. Uh, that's Lake Chad up there, the big blue thing, uh, in 1963, and that's Lake Chad, 2013. Uh, put Mother Nature on a graph, she looks like a graph of global average temperature. She looks like a big hockey stick. Uh, put Mother Nature on a graph, she looks like a graph of extreme weather, another hockey stick. Or put Mother Nature on a graph, the mother of all hockey sticks, world population growth through history. So if you put Mother Nature on a graph today, she is one big accelerating hockey stick. Now the market for me is globalization, but not your grandfather's globalization. That was containers on ships and planes. That's actually pretty flat today. What's globalizing the world and knitting it together today is actually digital globalization. Though everything's being digitized and globalized through, through uh, online courses, through PayPal, through Facebook, through Twitter, etc. Put globalization on a graph today, it looks like another hockey stick. Total data consumed per month. Or it looks like another hockey stick. Mobile cellular subscriptions in the United States, in the UK, in France, in Gabon. The graph all looks the same. Another hockey stick. And lastly, put uh, globalization on the graph. It looks like global internet users. Another hockey stick. The last acceleration is in Moore's Law. So Moore's Law was coined in 1965 by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, who posited in a famous article in Electronics Magazine that the speed and power of microchips will double every 24 months, and the price would stay roughly the same. Moore's Law has held up for 54 years, and if you put it on the graph, it looks like the mother of all hockey sticks. 
the power of microchips just doubling, doubling, and doubling. This PowerPoint's running on a laptop back there. It actually has, I'm pretty sure, an Intel 14 nanometer chip in it. Um, uh, it has 35 million transistors per square millimeter. Uh, last January, Intel began shipping its 10 nanometer chip. It has 100 million transistors per square millimeter. What's the difference between 35 million and 100 million? It's the difference between a self-driving car that needs just a little, that needs the whole trunk of the car to contain the brains of the car, and a self-driving car that needs a little box under the front seat. Now, um, uh, 19. Uh, a few years ago, Intel decided to explain the power of this Moore's Law acceleration. They got their engineers to try to figure out what would have happened if you took a 1971 Volkswagen Beetle and it had improved at the same rate as microchips had since 1971. And they estimated that if that had happened, that VW Beetle today would go 300,000 miles an hour, it would get 2 million miles per gallon, and it would cost you 4 cents. You'd be able to drive it your entire life on a single tank of gas. That is the power of the technological exponential driving our lives. But we and also break down and reboot every 10 minutes. That, that, that's <laughs> probably true. But to tie it up, Rana, that I think that we're in the middle of three giant hockey stick accelerations um, in the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. And they're not just changing your world. They're reshaping your world. And they're reshaping five realms in particular. And that's what Thank You for Being Late is about. They're reshaping politics, geopolitics, the workplace, ethics, and community. Tom, thank you very much for the really very broad and very wide oversight of these various factors interacting with each other. And let's get straight to the analysis of some of these factors. Now, one of the things that you've written about, but I think really bears some examination, is the confluence of two particular dates. They're historical dates, but not very far in history, 2007, 2008. And you've pointed out that in some ways, the fact that we associate 2008 with perhaps the greatest financial crisis we've had in the post-Cold War era has overshadowed the creation of what you call a supernova in 2007, the year before. Could you tell us a bit more about how those two dates come together? Um, Absolutely. So um, my chapter actually on Moore's Law in my book is called What the Hell Happened in 2007? What the hell happened in 2007? I know what you're thinking. What's this guy talking about? 2007? Such an innocuous year. (laughs) Well, here's what happened in 2007. The year was kicked off actually on January 9th at the Moscone Center in San Francisco when a guy named Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone. Um, That iPhone is actually a handheld computer with more compute power in it than the Apollo space mission. And they tell me it doubles as a phone and a camera. That's how the year was kicked off. Uh, In 2007, it's actually late 2006, a company called Facebook opened its platform to anyone with a registered email address. And in 2007, Facebook broke out of high schools and universities and went global. In 2007, a company called Twitter split off on its own independent platform and went global. In 2007, the most important software you've never heard of uh, called VMware went public. VMware is what enables any operating system to work on any computer. It's the foundation of cloud computing. In 2007, the second most important software you've never heard of called Hadoop, named after the founder's son's toy elephant, was launched into the wild. Hadoop's what enables a million computers to work together as if they're one. I think that's called big data. Hadoop didn't invent those algorithms. They're actually invented by Google. They're called GFS and MapReduce. 
produced. But as uh, Doug Cutting, the founder of Hadoop, explains in the book, uh, Google lives in the future and sends us letters back home. Um, and what Google did was leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the open source community to reverse engineer their big data algorithm, and Hadoop was the free public version. And everyone in business here is actually running it in the background. In 2007, the third most important software you've never heard of called GitHub opened its doors. It's the largest repository of open source software with 15 million users. And for the geeks among you will appreciate the irony of it was bought last year by Microsoft. Uh, in 2007, a company called Google launched a little-known TV company. It was called YouTube. And in 2007, Google launched into the wild its own operating system. They called it Android. Uh, in 2007, IBM launched the world's first cognitive computer. They called it Watson. In 2007, a guy up in Seattle named Jeff Bezos launched the world's first ebook reader. He called it the Kindle. In 2007, a company called Netflix streamed its first video. In 2007, late 2006, the internet crossed a billion users. Seems to have been a tipping point. Uh, in 2007, an anonymous Japanese cryptocurrency expert launched an essay that launched a cryptocurrency. Uh, it was called Bitcoin. In 2007, three design students in San Francisco were attending the design conference that year, and they noticed all the hotel rooms were sold out. But one of them had three spare air mattresses. And they thought it might be cool to see if they could rent their air mattresses out to people who couldn't get hotel rooms. And it worked out so well for them. In 2007, they started a company called Airbnb. Yeah, that's where the title comes from. Their three air mattresses. Now, here's what else happened in 2007. Get the the, uh, PowerPoint up again. So this is a graph of the cost of sequencing a human genome. You'll notice it's $100 million in 2001. It falls to $10 million in 2006. And then you'll notice it goes over a cliff, like an EKG heading for a heart attack in uh, 2007. Uh, in 2007, solar energy took off, as did a process for extracting natural gas from tight shale called fracking. Uh, Between 2006 and 2008, America's total natural gas reserves increased by 35%, a staggering number for an 18-month period. And uh, this is one of my favorite graphs. This is a picture of social networks. So that white line going down, that's the cost of generating a megabit of data. And you notice it collapses in... 2007. The blue line is the speed of generating that data. The two lines cross in 2008, close enough for government work. Um, uh, This is a graph, one of my favorites, of cloud computing. The first year we get statistics is 2008, which means the cloud was born around 2007. Uh, In 2007, Intel, for the first time, went off silicon to extend Moore's Law, introduced non-silicon materials into its microchips. In 2005, Rana... Michael Dell retired, the founder of Dell Computers, and in 2007, he decided he better come back to work. (laughs) Turns out, friends, 2007, I believe, will be understood in time as one of the single greatest technological inflection points since Gutenberg, and we all completely missed it. And why did we miss it? Because of 2008. Yeah, right when our physical technologies took off, like we're on a moving sidewalk at an airport that suddenly went from 5 to 50 miles an hour, right when that happened, our social technologies, the learning reform, management reform, regulatory reform, you'd want to go with such an incredible acceleration, all froze because we entered the deepest recession since 1929. And in that gap, 
between what happened to our physical technologies and what happened to our social technologies, many, many Trump and Brexit voters were born because many people got completely dislocated. Tom, it's a story both of immense promise and potentially very apocalyptic. Let's take apart some of the elements of it. Please. One other thing that we had back in 2007, some would argue, was privacy and the chance of accountable government. And it's notable that in your account of how the world has changed immeasurably, maybe irreversibly in the last 10 or 11 years, you mentioned Microsoft, you mentioned uh, Intel, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Google. In other words, you've mentioned a huge variety of very powerful corporations, none of which are accountable to democratic processes in the ways that governments are. Um, Shoshana Zuboff has written a very well-regarded book recently which has looked at what she calls surveillance Surveillance capitalism. In other words, are we living these days in a consumer paradise where essentially we have sold our privacy and our capacity as citizens to a bunch of corporations who nobody ever voted for? It's a very good question. Um, And so the way I kind of think about the Internet age, uh, well, to put it in American baseball terms, like the first inning was fantastic. Oh, (laughs) suddenly we got email and Siri and Google and search. Uh, But the second inning has been a real bear, okay? Um, Because the second inning was when all these things became apparent. I did it. I had an interesting conversation, which I turned into a column, Ron, a couple weeks ago, with the people who run the um, SAT uh, program in America, the College Board. And uh, they run the SATs and the SAT2s, which drill down into some specialties. And um, David Coleman, Stephanie Sanford, they concluded that there are many things a high school student needs to know when they graduate high school. But they decided there are actually two things that every high school student must know. Two codes. How to code a computer and the code of the U.S. Constitution. And Mark Zuckerberg is exhibit A of somebody who took the first course and never took the second course. <laughs> and, well, um, he did drop out of Harvard after Yes, all. I'm afraid he didn't get to con law. And, um, uh, and the reason I say this is that... Um, uh, uh, so a column, I, 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 where columns come from in my head, I don't really know. It's a kind of a chemical thing. So uh, I'll, I'll come... I'll tie this point up by just going around about for a second. People are often, they're really, they're really trying to be nice and polite, and so they come up to you and say, like this week we're here, people say, hey, you're working on a new book. And uh, I say, um, geez, I just wrote a book about the three largest forces on the planet reshaping the world, and I don't have three new ones this year, okay? Um, but um, as I thought about that, it made me sit back and think, well, what am I doing? You know, what am I, what am I seeing? And you really touched on it, right? We actually... What I realize what's going on is all these forces are just going deep. So my wife is building a, a language museum in Washington. It's called Planet Word. Uh, it'll be the world's first interactive um, uh, word language museum. Um, it'll be open in a year. And um, so my wife likes to come home. She's a real word person. And at the end of the year, she always tells me what the word of the year is. Because the online dictionaries can now track that. So a couple of years ago it was they, transgender people. Don't call it he, she, one called they. Um, last year, interesting, on Webster's Merriman, the word of the year was justice. Most looked up word. Interesting. So I, I did a column saying, I can tell you what the word of the year is going to be for 2019. Close the contest now. Um, and I think the word of the year is going to be deep. Uh-huh. As in deep fake, deep surveillance, deep insight, deep mind, deep knowledge. All these technologies are going deep, Rana, but as your question implied, without a lot of the privacy, ethical, regulatory considerations that we need as these things go deep. 
And it's actually interesting if you watch the Oscars, because I do believe things are in the zeitgeist, what was the song of the year? It was Lady Gaga, The Shallow. Um, uh, but you actually have to listen to the song. What's the song about? We're leaving the shallow now. We're off in the deep end. And uh, I really think that there's something in the zeitgeist that people sense that these technologies are going deep and we have not put in place the governing mechanisms or the ethical mechanisms. Well, let's take one particular issue which I think is permanent in the news. It's an area you know very well, but frankly, it's not very well understood, and that is the state of the Middle East at the moment. I know that you've been in the Middle East quite recently. You've written recently columns from Jordan as well as elsewhere in in, in the region. Let's talk about Jordan itself for a moment. You mentioned this particular question about social media, but actually... Jordan is one of those places that sort of always slips under the radar. You know, Iran or Egypt or other places tend to grab the headlines more. And yet it's always struck me that it's kind of an anchor state in that part of the Middle East. And an anchor isn't always there. It can be pulled up and removed. It's a very good way to put it, right? You know, um, uh, it's a buffer state. Buffer between Israel and Iraq at one point, um, Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, not, I mean, Israel also abuts Syria, but um, it's... um, a place that uh, obviously has absorbed so many refugees. It's been a buffer that way. It's absorbed now Syrian refugees. It absorbed Iraqi refugees. It absorbed Palestinians when they were evicted from the Gulf after Gulf War I. And it's an important buffering state. It's not perfect. It's got all kinds of problems. But boy, we'd miss it if it were gone. You know, uh, uh, I mean, it would be... Um, there would a lot, be a lot of people grinding directly up... And how likely do you think it is that it might actually not be there at some point in the near future? Well, I, I think what Jordan is worried about very much right now is Jared Kushner's peace plan. Um, uh, they may not be the only ones. Yes, right. I'm worried about Jared Kushner's peace plan. Um, uh, I would say what they're worried about more generally, Ron, is Trump's whole approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so, you know, one of the things I've tried to point out, um, whether America is dealing with Saudi Arabia or Israel or Egypt or Jordan, we played a role historically in the region of being a reality enforcer. Because all these leaders have cabinets or are surrounded by people, ruling circles, um, with moderates and centrists and some really crazy people. Uh-huh. And, um, and let's take the Israeli cabinet. And um, uh, so, so Netanyahu or his predecessors always needed to say, when one of those crazies stood up and said, let's annex the Golan Heights or let's annex the West Bank, Netanyahu always needed to say, I'd love to do that crazy thing you want to do. I'm totally with you. But the Americans broke my arm, okay? I mean, mean, the Americans would break my arm. Now, (laughs) rather than playing that role, we're actually um, encouraging extreme behavior. I mean, you know, when Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I, I got a call from, from the White House. They, like, never called, but they called on this one and said, uh, just want you to know we moved the embassy. I'm from the NSC staff. We, em- we moved the embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I said, oh, what did you get for it? <laughs> and, um, and there was a silence on the line. And I said to myself, oh, no, 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 don't, don't tell me. Don't tell me you gave it away for free. Okay. Um, we just did the same on the Golan Heights. So what are the gets to Jordans? What are the Jordanians? Well, they gave away the Jerusalem. They gave away the Golan. What's next? The West Bank. And if, if Trump sort of assents to Israeli annexation, they're tacit or uh, real or, 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 or formal, um, 
Well, he knows what's next. That's Jordan's Palestine. And that's, so they're terrified of this right now. And extremely, extremely worried. But the other thing going on in Jordan, you really see is, you know, the, Air, the first Arab Spring really was about democracy and voice. Um, uh, and, and young Arabs lost their fear in the Arab, first Arab Spring. This Arab Spring, if one is brewing now, we see in Algeria, Sudan, Gaza, Jordan, it's going to be about youth unemployment. Um, and that is now a pervasive problem in this part of the world before automation has come there. So wait when automation comes. And so there's a real problem brewing there around youth unemployment. Is there a particular problem with youth unemployment that is linked actually with graduate training and higher expectations? And I'm thinking here of the fact that a very large number of people who've got involved in extreme terror groups in Egypt actually turn out to have been trained as engineers. So they're not sort of peasants out there in the countryside. These are people who have learnt a lot. They have high expectations. The expectations are not fulfilled Yes. And they go in a particular direction. For a long time, I used to call myself the New York Times humiliation and dignity correspondent because I realized I'd, I'd really spent a lot of my career covering people acting out on their humiliation and questing for dignity, whether it was China after a century of humiliation, Russia after the Cold War, Palestinians versus Israelis, Muslim youth in Europe versus the Christian majority. There's a lot of people walking around. Um, you know, humiliation is the single most powerful human emotion I have found, and the quest for dignity. And that gets back to my listening point, why listening is so important. And so um, uh, you, you have now, you have a lot of young men um, in this part of the world who have, um, uh, they've never held power, uh, they've never held a job, and they've never held a girl's hand. And that is a really bad combination. Where do you see that going? You, you've identified the phenomenon. You've been to those places. You see what's brewing up. What, what do you see coming next? Um, you know, I, it's, it's really hard to know, Ronald. Let me, let me try to um, expand that question, if I could, mm-hmm. into the whole question of um, what happens to all of these states. Okay, so, so I have a chapter in the book um, which is called... Um, uh, control versus chaos, basically. Uh-huh. It, it comes out of a, uh, actually American TV show. But um, the argument I make is that, um, you know, the world was governed by empires for millennia until the late 19th and early 20th century, and we broke up into all these nation states, particularly after World War I and decolonization, um, uh, and then World War II. So much so that we woke up in 1945, and we had a United Nations with like 190 countries. We'd never had so many individual countries before. And the 50 years after World War II were a great time to be a weak little country. If you were a weak little country, that was your era. Why? First of all, there were two superpowers throwing money at you, foreign aid, sending you food aid, building your government house, educating your kids at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow or Ohio State in America. Um, uh, You could be Syria and lose three wars to Israel and get your army rebuilt for free all three times. Um, uh, It was a great time to be a a weak little state. Number one. Number two, populations were moderate. Number three, climate change was moderate. Mm -hmm. Really hadn't got kicked in. Number four, no one had a cell phone. Uh, I couldn't see Phoenix or Paris or London, you know. Um, And lastly, China was not in the World Trade Organization. So everybody could be in the low-wage textile business. Now, my argument is that in the early 21st century, around 2007, all of that flips. Now, no superpower wants to touch you because all you win is a bill. 
Um, yes, the Russians are in Syria, but they're not rebuilding Syria. They're just actually exploiting Syria for their own you know, uh, power projection. Number two, uh, populations now have exploded. So Nigeria will have more people in America by 2050. Africa has 411 million. Africa has 1.2 billion people. Now it's projected by the UN to have 2.4 billion in 2050. Uh, climate change is out of control. I did a documentary last year on, uh, for National Geographic following climate refugees from Senegal through Niger up to, um, up to Europe. And what you see in Senegal, in these villages in northern Senegal, is there are no men in these villages between the ages of 18 and 65. They've all left because the land can't sustain them anymore, the small-scale agriculture. Um, and, uh, and it's partly a climate change issue because Senegal's already... Senegal's at two degrees rise average temperature since the Industrial Revolution. Two degrees rise average temperature. Where have I heard that number? Oh, that's what the Paris Climate Agreement was designed to prevent by 2100. Senegal's already there. They're going to four degrees. And lastly, China is in the World Trade Organization. So nobody can be in the textile business. And so, in fact, I I, I tell a story that um, I was in Egypt for Tahrir Square and I was there for three weeks away from my wife. And so I um, I told this story in the book. I went home and I was at the... Cairo Airport, I went into the Treasures of Egypt souvenir shop to buy my, my honey, a little something to remind her where her honey was. And um, uh, let's see, what do they have here? Pyramids, ashtrays, and my, my honey doesn't smoke. Um, uh, Sphinx, bookends, my, my honey has plenty of bookends. But um, over here, they had a stuffed camel, and um, they had a stuffed camel, and if you squeezed its hump, it honked. And my honey didn't have a honking humped camel. So um, I picked it up and I turned it over. And what did it say on the bottom? Made in China. Yeah, you're the lowest wage country in the Eastern Mediterranean. And there's now a country half a world away can make your honking humped camel cheaper than you can ship it and sell it for Okay, but Tom, let me throw a scenario. No, let me just finish this. All right, right, all right. I'm terrified by the camel, but go on, go on, go on. So what's happening? Basically, all these weak little states, they're now starting to fracture. And they're starting to hemorrhage people. In the hemisphere I live in, it's primarily Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, who sent us 187,000 unaccompanied minors in the last four years. That's just orphans. Um, And in this hemisphere, it's sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, and the Middle East. And I think the biggest geopolitical thing happening in the world today, Ron, is the number of people trying to get out of the world of disorder into the world of order, changing the politics of the world of order, creating all these populist nationalist backlashes. And I think the central geopolitical challenge of our time is how do we collaborate with these countries to stabilize the world of disorder? Just as we created a Marshall Plan to to stabilize uh, Europe from the movement of communism from east to west, we need to stabilize disorder moving from north to south. So let me throw a scenario at you, Tom, to perhaps respond to that uh, point. Some people say there is an outfit out there that's doing the new Marshall Plan, and that's China's Mm -hmm. so-called New Silk Road, Belt and Road Initiative. And some aspects of that are trying to deal with the story that you just told. So Ethiopia, you know, very, very interesting country, which I'm sure you've you've visited. But next on the list, probably the only place you've not not been to, uh, to yet, where in fact shoe factories are moving from China to Ethiopia. I mean, there are essentially Trump voters in southern China, or the equivalent of, who are saying, the Africans are stealing all our jobs. Also, China, Japan, South Korea, these places have demographics that are getting older and older. Another big big year to come, 2029, when China finally gets older, faster, and large parts actually of the developed Asian world too. And with that Belt and Road Initiative, with a new transport and security network building up across the Eurasian continent, looking east, not west... 
What are the chances of that development maybe either changing, mitigating, or just altering the dynamic you're talking about? People looking east rather than west for that huge migration that we're talking about. I have a great answer. You tell me. <laughs> uh, because, you, I mean, I, I um, uh, you know, so anything to, in my view, Ryan, that, that contributes to better governing institutions and um, real economic activity, um, I think is a net plus. The things I've read about China's Belt and Road have been ambiguous to me. Some looks exploitative, other, uh, other looks, you know, um, uh, like it may have some of that potential. But to me, this is a global project. Mm-hmm. That this is something the United States, Russia, EU, we should actually be collaborating on. So, in other words, in a get involved. Way. Don't exactly. Push back. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And try to, I think, try to shape it mm-hmm. in, a, in a productive way. Um, so, I'm, I'm not against it on, on principle at all. Um, I just want to know it's going to actually stabilize these countries. But I think that, I mean, what are we doing in America? We're actually doing just the opposite. I mean, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement at a time when climate change is destabilizing these countries. He's banned the export of um, uh, family planning technology, a time when population is, is uh, to, to satisfy evangelicals. And he just announced he's withdrawing our aid from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras until they control their people better, as if they have ability to somehow do that and just haven't heard from him, you know, uh, the instruction. So, um, uh, so what's scary to me is we're actually making it worse uh, not actually thinking strategically about this problem. And the ultimate thing he wants to do is just put up a wall. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
So I think we've done really good, done really well to get this far on the conversation. Just ten minutes was, or so yeah. before, before we start, Trump. before we start the uh, the, the yeah. Q and A, and not mention yeah. Trump at yeah. that point. That but was... since you opened up that box, yeah, please, yeah. let's run with it a little bit because I suspect please. that uh, the President of the United States may come up just once or twice in the questions we have. Let me ask a very simple question: Do you think that there will be a second Donald J. Trump term in office, and what will it do to world order if there is? Um, uh, I'm. I have no idea who will win. I think it's just too early to tell. I've spent so much on the state of the economy and which Democrat, uh, assume, you know. Um, Do you want to name any names him. on the Democrat side? No, it really is right. Way, way too early, you know. Um, uh, and I think we, I think this will be though a, this will be an unusual election. I can't tell exactly how, but I think this is going to be an election unlike any other. Um, unlike the last one, which was completely normal. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even crazier than the last one. Oh, um, we look forward to that. Yeah. Um, I think the United States can survive four years of Donald Trump and our institutions will hold. I do not think we can survive eight years. Um, and, uh, what, what does not surviving mean? That I think he will do irreparable damage to um, our system of justice, our institutions. That I'll just give you a small example. We're now in his third year of president. We have no ambassador in Saudi Arabia. We have no ambassador in Egypt. We have no ambassador in Jordan. We have no ambassador in uh, Iraq, and we have, we, uh, have no ambassador in Turkey. That's not a mistake. That's someone who just doesn't think those are important. Um, and uh, it's actually th- true throughout the bureaucracy. Um, and so, what you, you know how demoralizing that can be to a State Department? And now imagine that over eight years. Um, and, and again, who's going, the kind of people you get to be ambassadors also in this administration um, doesn't exactly strengthen those institutions. So um, you have a lot of young people to say, I know, I'm going to go to Oxford, I'm going to study with Rana, I'd like to be in China, but hey, I don't want to go in the State Department now? Nobody cares about it at all. And that's just one example. So, you know, these institutions we have, um, these are our crown jewels. I've heard the two views on the Trump administration as an international actor. One is the view that essentially the administration is dismantling the international order as we've known it since 1945. The other is that, yeah, he tweets a lot, there's a lot of rhetoric, but when you look at the core policies, actually not such a big change. Which side, you sound like you'd fall more on the former. Yeah, I think it's partly the, the part of the world, it, it depends on which part of the mm. world you're, you're talking about. I mean, like on the question of China, um, uh, one of my sort of best thinkers in China likes to say that Donald Trump is not the American president Americans deserve, but he is the American president China deserves. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think China got rich right, over the last uh, 30 years <coughs> with three things, three main strategies. Um, the first was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, please, hard work, uh, education, in smart investments in infrastructure, delayed gratification, national unity pulling together, number one basket. Second basket, stealing intellectual property, forced transfer of technology, mm-hmm. non-reciprocal trade arrangements, and consistent violation of WTO rules. Third basket, the American Pacific Fleet. 
The American Pacific fleet has been very important for China's growth because it allowed everyone on the periphery of China to feel we can be economically dominated by China, but we won't be physically and militarily dominated. And, um, but that second basket was... China got rich metaphorically using that second basket and the first um, on... I exaggerate, but T-shirts, tennis shoes, solar panels. Mm-hmm. If we allowed them to use the same strategy on aerospace, biomaterials, supercomputing, um, we'd be making a huge mistake, I think. And um, and I think, therefore, Trump... Uh, you know, some things are true even if Donald Trump believes them. And I'm a big, big uh, believer well, of that. Well, Tom, 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 it's not yeah. just Donald Trump, because yeah. you may not have heard, but... We are very shortly about to do great trade deals with China once we liberate ourselves from the shackles of Europe. And if I may, I'm going to quote from the New York Times this morning, where with objectivity, calm, and a certain amount of restraint, your column today is headlined, The United Kingdom Has Gone Mad. Uh, You've obviously are not impressed by Brexit. Um, Do you think, the question I have for you is, do you think actually this is just a little local difficulty? You know, it's important to us, but the further you go away from Northwest Europe, the less it matters. Or is this something that has greater significance? I think it has enormous significance. Um, let me put it in, in a broad historical context, and then I'll drill down. Um, after the Second World War, I think the world um, that we were lucky, we were blessed by having... Uh, some great statesmen and women, but uh, in those days more, more men than women, who um, built the institutions that governed the post-Cold War world, post-World War II world. Um, and it was the, um, eventually the common market, it was the, the World Bank, it was the IMF, it was the United Nations, and, um, and a certain set of norms and, and values as well about um, non-seizure of territory and the like. We were very lucky that the statesmen who came together to build that world. I think in 1989, we reached another real um, critical junction with the collapse of of communism. And we were again, and I was lucky enough to be covering Secretary of State James Baker then, uh, to have a front row seat to another group of, I think, um, very talented and high-minded statesmen and women, um, George H.W. Bush, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Jim Baker, Brent Scowcroft, Helmut Kohl, um, Francois Mitterrand, and most of all, Mikhail Gorbachev. And those people really, I think, designed the transition um, and shaped the transition of the, uh, the post-1989 world. We were really lucky. 2007 is another fulcrum point. And I think our luck ran out. I don't think we have the kind of leaders with um, either the vision or, more importantly, the selflessness of, uh, of those people. I don't want to exaggerate it, but the willingness to do the right thing, um, I think we have a real shortage of those leaders at another fulcrum point in history, and that makes me really nervous. If we don't have those leaders, and clearly at least many millions of people who voted for them might think that we do, why don't we? So um, that's a problem. I just don't know. It's out of our skill set. I do, though, blame social media mm-hmm. for some of it. I think it's just harder to be a leader today because you are constantly... Um, uh, you got so much chirping in your ear all the time 
Um, and uh, I think that's part of it. That's not the whole story by any means, but I think that's part of the story. Is part of it also that some have argued that one genera- two generations ago, most leaders had gone through the Second World War, either right. as leaders or they'd fought, and the generation after that had fought the Cold War and understood the nuclear stakes, and the generation that came of age after 1990 didn't exactly yeah. have either of those things. And I think that's, that's very true. I, I don't think... Um, uh, I mean, the whole... You know, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing. That, you know, that was just part of the, the sort of frivolousness of, 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 that, of that era. But um, what, what troubles me, I, I, Brexit's not my business per se. This is the, the choices for the British people. What troubles me is um, how, how poorly the choice was prepared and presented. I would have expected a hundred different competing studies on what would be the implications of Brexit. I'm not sure the government did even one. Um, uh, if, it, if they did one, I didn't, you know, it, w- it wasn't widely publicized, you know. Um, and what bothers me, I'll be very blunt, you know, um, it's playing with big systems. You don't play, the, the, the EU is a big system. You can be for it or against it. I totally respect that. But don't play with it. Don't say, I'm going to be for Brexit because I know it's going to fail. And then when it fails, I'll be able to position myself as the guy who was against it, and that will allow me to take over the, you know, the Conservative Party, and my name's Boris Johnson, and, you know, um, uh, you know, and... You know, tell um, us what you really think. Yeah, and so I call that playing with big systems. And then what happens, you know, they never thought the dog would catch the car, and the dog caught the car. And now it's sitting on the hood, and it's barking at you, you know. And you're playing with big systems. You can be against it, you can be for it. But you have to be serious about it. What I'm going to do is take just a small number of questions at a time and then bring it back to to Tom. Do we see... um, What do we have over here? Okay, we have um, a three over there. Could we give that to... Oh. Uh, thank you for that. It was really interesting. Uh, first, you just want to add that Twitter is 280 characters. I don't know if that no. changes your Shows you. <laughs> perspective on the matter. Um, it, it seems to me that I'm going to marry a couple of Please. your interests here in my question. It seems to me that... Um, Looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, looking at the state of intergovernmental relations between Israel and the Palestinians is somewhat of a red herring. Yeah. The problem really lies at the intercommunal level. There is not good relations between uh, Israelis and Palestinians, ordinary Israelis and Palestinians. Um, while social media has a deleterious impact on the state of political discourse across the world, I do just wonder if the younger generation growing up with a better, more refined social media etiquette could actually lead to improved discourse between young Israelis and Palestinians, which could actually potentially lead to some sort of solution in the future. So I just kind of wanted to hear yeah, your, it's interesting. It's your very, thoughts on that. That's a, that's a very thoughtful question. I, um, I, I tend not to invest technology with that kind of power. Um, my own experience is that, um, that what actually creates that breakthrough you're talking about is not technology, but actually politics in this sense. I, I've always believed that Israelis will never really be truly at home unless Palestinians can take, you know, are at home. And Palestinians will never be truly at home and able to take their shoes off unless Israelis are. And the reason that becomes important is because it's only then that the Israeli says to the Palestinian, once they're both secure in their own space, what were you trying to tell me about humiliation? You know, what were you trying to tell? I mean, that's when they hear, and that's when the, the Palestinian says to the Israeli, what were you trying to tell me about the Holocaust? You were trying to tell, I remember you, you were trying to tell me something. You know, it's only when people are secure in their own space, and then you know what? They don't need Twitter, they don't need Facebook, you know, just need an old telephone 
or to meet, you know, for coffee. But I think the politics has to get right first. Lady over here, excellent. Number three. Hi, um, fantastic speech. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you very it. Thank much. you. Um, you spoke about the fact that you didn't want people to invade your space and yeah. tell you what you think. The greatest thing that's hitting the world at the moment is teenage yeah. mental health yeah. and how it affects. And I know there's a huge campaign with the royals. There's a huge campaign to protect teenagers. Yes. And it's easy for you to switch off and yeah. say you're not going to listen. Right. I would say that that's one of the hugest impacts. Yeah on future leaders is that they're listening too much and they care too much and that's why our rates of suicide especially young men is going up people listen the teenagers are listening too much so that's why they don't create good leaders because they're worried about what people think think, about them yeah I think that's Mm. a I I don't have anything to add just to add to your point and there's another dimension of it which I I got into in in my book I, I have a interesting interview with our uh, Surgeon General, our, our leading government doctor, Vivek Murthy, and I was interviewing when I was writing the book, and I said to him one day, oh, Vivek, what's the most prevalent disease in America? Is it heart disease, cancer, or diabetes? He said, it's none of those. It's isolation. I said, wait a minute. We live in the most connected age in history, and you're telling me isol- yeah, that basically depression-related isolation, and you saw that with the guy this terrible person who shot up the mosque in New Zealand. You know, all these guys have pretty much the same profile. They're kind of marinating at home in all these websites alone. Not, they don't have strong relationships with people. And, um, and that's why I just really so worry about, the, you know, you have all these teenagers who see their friends on Instagram. Why was I not invited to that party? I must be ugly. I must be unpopular, you know. And um, so I'm, I'm not, I talk the talk of technology, but I actually don't walk the walk. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a late adopter of a lot of things. I, I, I get it. I have a, I'm a privileged, I have a column in the New York Times, you know what I mean? So I understand that. But at the same time, um, uh, you know, my wife edits all my columns, literally, virtually every column, except maybe one from the Arctic, you know, my wife has edited. <laughs> and so I've also got someone I really trust who uh, would look out, you know, for my, but also is not the least bit afraid to telling me that is the worst column you've ever written and you need to start over, okay? And so, but we all kind of need that kind of person in our lives today and unfortunately I feel there's so many young people that are getting marinated in some really dangerous stuff. Number one has been extremely patient, so right at the back of the hall, oh, wow. go ahead. Uh, hello, uh, it's been very insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you. I wanted to ask on your views on the U- U.S.-Mexico relations and more broadly speaking, U.S.-Latin America relations yeah. in the short and longer terms. Thank you. Very good question. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we are so lucky, um, America. We have this North American platform. Of We have this neighbor to the south that's democratizing, shares a lot of our value, our culture is integrated with our economy. We have a neighbor to the north the same way. Um, the last people in the world I would want to antagonize um, is Mexico. I mean, we're so lucky to have this stable neighbor. And um, I really fear that Donald Trump has hit on a, um, a, a campaign tool which is making people frightened um, or uh, either culturally flight, frightened or physically frightened uh, using Mexico... Uh, in particular in Latin Americans in general as his foil. And um, we're so lucky. Mexico has been amazingly patient, you know. Um, I mean, the only real blowback was when former President Vincente Fox said, we're not going to pay for your fucking wall, you know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, um, 
all I ask of my Mexican friends is just wait this out. Hopefully it's about 18 more months, you know, and hopefully we'll get things back to normal. But thanks for your question. That We have a number two over there. Thank you very much. Very interesting thank opinions. You. Ah, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Right over there. Please, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to hear your opinion about Turkey and mm. considering the most recent local elections. Um, just, so, just for anyone here who hasn't been following Turkey, to some people's surprise, the opposition did extremely well in Ankara, Istanbul, and other cities pushing back against Erdogan in the elections yeah. the last few days. Thank you. Um, I, I just think this is fantastic. Uh, what happened uh, because the thing I love about being a reporter is that people always surprise you and just when one of these dictators thinks they've got it all wired I got all the courts I got all the TV I got all the newspaper I got all the business along come the people and they actually tell them what they think and um Now, I don't want to exaggerate it. It was the big cities, but they're very important. And for them to triumph over a deck that was so stacked against them uh, gives me actually hope as an American vis-a-vis Trump. Um, Seriously, it it gives me hope for Russians vis-a-vis Putin. Because we've kind of got a whole class of leaders around the world today. Uh, Erdogan, Sisi, MBS... Putin, they've all kind of stacked the deck um, in a way. And, um, and there's this feeling like there's nothing we can do. And God bless the people of Turkey. I think they sent a very important message that had the whole Brexit debate not been going on here, I think it would have been a huge story around the world. We have uh, number three over here. Uh, Mr. Friedman, yeah. if you were President Trump... What card would you play in order to unlock the political stalemate currently happening in Venezuela? Um, That is a really good question. A question number four up there, please. Um, uh, Somebody had a four. Oh, there it is. I I wish I had, I've only been to Venezuela once. I wish I had a more intelligent answer for you. Um, But... um, Here's what I think we're doing, and not doing too badly, but you tell me. Um, uh, and it gets to that line on my business card, which is um, amplification. So I've learned the hard way um, that, uh, how much I don't know about countries. But there's one thing um, I think I can still see, and that is when someone is doing the right thing in a country that we care about, try to amplify it. And so I think that's what we're trying to do with the opposition. I think we're not going to invade Venezuela. We shouldn't be invading Venezuela. I, I think we're trying to be very careful about what we do, but there's clearly a, a large number of Venezuelans that want to change in the political system, but there's also a very rooted um, you know, uh, group that's holding on. And I think in this kind of situation, the smartest thing for us to do is do everything we can to amplify the democratic forces. Ultimately, Venezuelans have to sort this out. I hope they do it peacefully. But I'm really into amplification now. And I kind of think that's what we're doing. And, and um, uh, it seems to be heading, tilted more in the right direction in the wrong direction, I hope. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. And we have uh, number four over here. Tom, um, I read your column judiciously for, for many, many years. I have read all your books. Bless your heart. 
<laughs> He's brought them all to sign as well. Yeah. <laughs> My question is, <clears throat> with Bob Mueller's investigation complete and out, and apparently Trump escaping, does it enhance his chances for a second term? That's a, it's a very important question. Um, so I personally, um, I, I never really wrote much about collusion. I, I, I just never saw a smoking gun in what was reported in the press. And I never thought Trump was organized enough to collude. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, but I, I would urge you to, to hold that question. Remember the report's almost 400 pages. Can you imagine what's in there? All you know is the conclusion, which was that a fair-minded, you know, uh, special investigator, special counsel said, I got all this evidence, not that he's innocent. In fact, they've clearly said this does not exonerate him, but I don't think in a court of law I can prove it to indict the president. So right now, Donald Trump's having a really good time using that you know, part of the Mueller report to, to drive home as much as he can. He's trying to do this deliberately. I've been exonerated, exonerated, exonerated. But today the U.S. Congress, the Democrats, uh, subpoenaed the full document, said we don't want a redacted version, and I promise you it will come out. And when it does, it will not be a good day for Donald Trump. Um, but that said, I'm a big believer. I do not want Donald Trump impeached unless there truly are provable high crimes and misdemeanors. I think it is vitally important for America that we vote him out the way he was voted in, that he see and we see that we could render a judgment on this man and that the world see that America came back to its senses and can render a judgment on this hand. I do not want him impeached. I want him voted out the way he was voted in. We could squeeze in one very last quick question and quick answer before we have to wrap up. Number one over there. No pressure. Um, Last question. Thank you. Um, In the beginning, you talked about three factors that are reshaping the world, Moore's Law being one. But then you said there were five areas that you see being influenced, ethics being one. Can you just expand on that? Concisely. I'm actually going to take a few minutes on that one because it's actually very important. Um, so my chapter on ethics is called, Is God in Cyberspace? And it's actually the best question I ever got on book tour. It was 1999. I was selling a book called Lexus and the Olive Tree. And um, I was in Portland, Oregon. Came to question time just like this. And a young man stood up in the balcony, said, Mr. Friedman, I have a question. Is God in cyberspace? And I said, Ah, uh, ah. Uh, Ah, uh, uh, I have no idea. And I felt like an idiot. So I came home and I called my spiritual teacher. He's a rabbi I got to know when I was the New York Times correspondent in Jerusalem. His name's Svi Marks, a brilliant Talmudist. And now lives in Amsterdam, married to a Dutch priest, interesting character. I called, uh, I called Svi in Amsterdam and I said, Svi, I got a question I've never had before. Is God in cyberspace? What should I have said? He said, well, Tom, in our faith tradition, we have two concepts of the Almighty. One is a biblical concept that the Almighty is uh, Almighty. He smites evil and rewards good. And if that's your view of God, 
he sure isn't in cyberspace, which is full of <laughs> pornography, gambling, cheating, lying, prevarication, people smearing one another on Twitter, and now we know fake news. Okay? But uh, fortunately, he said, we have a post-biblical view of God. And the post-biblical view of God says God manifests himself by how we behave. So if we want God to be in cyberspace, we have to bring him there by how we behave there. Only we can bring God into cyberspace. Really liked his answer. I put it into the 20, uh, um, uh, 2000 paperback edition of Lexus Neology, where none of you saw it, and it sat there for 16 years. I sat down to write this new book, and I found myself retelling that story spontaneously. And one day I sat myself down and said, why are you retelling that story? And the answer became immediately clear to me. It was for two reasons, and one just happened. I think in the last couple of years, we, at least in the developed world, we began living 51% of our lives in cyberspace. That's where you go now to find a date, find a spouse, buy a book, write a book, sell a book, buy a house, buy a car, get a mortgage, do your brokerage, get your news, make your news, send your pictures. We're now living 51% of our lives in cyberspace. And what's my definition of cyberspace? It's a realm where we're all connected and no one's in charge. We're all connected and no one's in charge. There's no courts in cyberspace, no police, no firemen, no 1-800-please-stop-Putin-from-hacking-my-election. But that's where we're living 51% of our lives. In other words, we're living 51% of our lives in a realm that is fundamentally God-free. And at the same time, because of my accelerations, we're now standing at a moral intersection we have never stood at before as a species. In 1945, we entered a world where one country could kill all of us post-Hiroshima. I think we're entering a world where one person can kill all of us. And at the same time, where all of us could actually fix everything. These accelerated powers are creating a world where one of us could kill all of us. And all of us, if we put our mind to it, we now have the tools to feed, house, clothe, and educate every person on the planet. We have never been to this intersection before. What is this intersection? We have never been more godlike as a species than we are today. We'll put those two together. You've never lived more of your life in a realm that's God-free, and we have never been more godlike. What does that mean? It means what every single person thinks, feels, and believes today really matters. It means everyone needs to be in the grip of sustainable values, and at a minimum, the golden rule, do unto others as you wish them to do unto you, because you now live in a world where more people can do unto you farther, faster, deeper, cheaper than ever before, and you can do unto others farther, faster, deeper, cheaper than ever before. Everyone needs to be in the grip of the golden rule, and every faith and culture has their version of it. I know what you're thinking. I gave this part of my talk as the commencement address a few years ago at Olin College of Engineering, And I told the parents at graduation, I know what you're thinking. You paid 200 grand (laughs) so your kid could get an engineering degree. And who do they bring in as the commencement speaker? But a knucklehead promoting the golden rule. Is there anything more naive? And what I told them is what I would tell you. Naivete is the new realism. Because I'll tell you what's really naive thinking we're going to be okay in a world that gets this interdependent, where men, women, machines get this super empowered, if everyone is not in the grip of sustainable values. Where do 
people learn the golden rule? Two places, strong families and healthy communities. I'm not an expert on strong families. I hope I built one. Would never presume to lecture anyone on that. But I am an expert on healthy communities because I grew up in one, a little town outside of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. And that's why my book ends in the little town where I grew up and learned these values. And that's why I said at the beginning, what I'd repeat now, that the faster the world gets, all the old stuff matters more than ever. All the stuff you cannot download, but have to upload the old-fashioned way, good parenting to good child, good pastor to good flock, good teacher to good student. It's all the stuff you can't download that matters more than ever. Thank you. Thank you so much to Intelligence Squared for hosting us. Thank you for all being here tonight. And could you once more show our appreciation to Thomas L. Friedman? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.